Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Reading from Exodus 18, which is on page 59 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all heard of all that God had done for Moses and for the people for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and the sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, Moses' father-in-law, before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to inquire, come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. And they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people um, with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure all this, able to endure, and all this people also will go in, go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them the heads over all the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and they went, and he went away on, uh, to his own country.
This is God's Word. invite you to keep your Bibles open to Exodus 18, and let's pray and ask God to meet us. Gracious Father, this is your word, and every time it's opened, you are speaking. So Lord, our desire right now is to hear, to listen, to obey, to respond, to love you in accordance with what you're revealing about yourself. And so would you meet us right now? Would you take your word by your spirit and apply it to our hearts? Give us ears to hear, eyes to see you, Lord, and hearts ready to be changed by your gospel. Amen. I want to thank Marcus again for sharing his story of grace and faith and how God uh, was at work through all sorts of circumstances to draw him to himself. Um, when someone shares their story of grace or story of faith or, or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, how they met Jesus, how Jesus changed their life, we often call that a testimony in Christian lingo. We bear public witness to who God is and what he's done. We give testimony to Christ. And every Christian, every follower of Jesus, has a testimony, has a story of how they met Jesus and how he has changed their life. But sometimes you will hear people worry that their testimonies are a little boring. Anybody ever think that or hear that? Um, You know, you hear a story like Marcus's and, and God redeeming him from... Worshipping false gods in his family home and then his mother and his grandfather. And you're just like, that's amazing. Praise God for that. Or you hear stories of others being delivered out of uh, alcohol abuse or or uh, depression or crime. And you're thinking, wow, isn't God amazing? But what if I grew up going to church and can't really remember a time when I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died for my sins? What if I don't really have a period in my story where I was like really rebellious or something? Um, Can God use that? It feels kind of boring. We think this sometimes. We often think that the more dramatic and depraved our life was before Christ, the more God can accomplish through our story. Uh, The starker the contrast, the greater display of his supremacy over all other would-be gods. You'll even hear people sometimes apologize that their story isn't more colorful. Which is basically say, sorry I didn't sin a whole lot more before I met Jesus. (laughs) But when you survey God, who so often displays his sovereign majesty and his his unique supremacy in such dramatic, supernatural ways. Parting the Red Sea, manna in the desert, water from the rock, raising the dead. There's a temptation to think that God's supremacy, His his, uh, unparalleled greatness, can only be seen in the spectacular. And of course, 
he does display his glory in the spectacular. I mean, we've, we've seen that. Uh, we're gonna see, we've seen it through our story in Exodus. We're going to see it again in our story this morning that God displays his glory through dramatic and miraculous events. But we're also going to see in our story this morning that God displays his supremacy through the ordinary as well. Through the unsurprising, the common, the everyday, the seemingly mundane. God makes his supremacy known through the miraculous and the ordinary. By miraculously rescuing Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea and all of the plagues. And by guiding them to address everyday problems in the wilderness with very ordinary solutions. So we pick up our story in Exodus 18, where Moses is finally reunited with his family, and in particular with his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro is the common character that ties this whole chapter together. We first met Jethro clear back in chapters 2 through 4. He was also called Ruel in in that passage. So he was the priest of Midian. Midian was a people living kind of east of Sinai. They have a common ancestry with Israel, uh, descended through Abraham, but, but had grown quite distinct. And it was Jethro's daughter whom, uh, Jethro's daughters whom Moses had saved that day when he had fled from Egypt for his life and he'd come to this well and there were these shepherdesses trying to water their flocks and these bullying shepherds kind of uh, taking advantage of them. Those were Jethro's daughters whom Moses saved that day. And eventually, the oldest of whom, I think it was the oldest, I'd have to look it up again, uh, but one of them, he ends up marrying, Zipporah. Uh, Zipporah, with whom he had his two sons, both named as reflections of Moses's earlier story. So he names his first son Gershom, which means sojourner. It's a picture of Moses' identity when he arrived in Midian as a man who was rejected by both uh, his own people, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians who raised him. He was a sojourner, a man without a home. And then his second son, he named Eliezer, meaning my God is help, which was a testimony of how God preserved his life when Pharaoh decided to take it uh, back in chapter 2. And in chapter 4, when Moses had first been called to go back to Egypt to rescue God's people, he had brought his wife and sons with him initially on that journey. Uh, But at some point in the journey, he had sent them home. We don't know when or anything like that. We're not sure why, though probably something to do with safety. Uh, And now word has come to Jethro uh, that God has actually done what he said he would do through Moses. He's rescued his people out of Egypt. And so Jethro is now bringing Moses' wife and sons back to be reunited uh, with him. But what's interesting about this particular story, uh, the narrator here tells us nothing about the reunion between Moses and his wife or kids. The reunion that we're kind of interested in. Uh, You know, we, we... watch videos online of of dads or moms who've been deployed overseas in military service being reunited with their kids right and sometimes you know at a at a baseball game or a, at a school or on a talk show and and you're trying not 
to let your colleagues see you crying as you're watching this beautiful reunion of this family. And I mean, this is like hallmark moment stuff. And we're excited to see this, but that's not what the narrator tells us about. We learn nothing about that reunion. The entire story instead is focused on Jethro, the father-in-law, and his reunion with Moses. And you've got to scratch your head and say, why? why? Why would that be the focus? The focus is on Jethro, who comes not only to deliver Moses' family back to him, or even himself just to be reunited with Moses. He comes because he's meeting God, it seems, for the very first time. Jethro's own life is about to be changed through what God has accomplished for Israel. He's heard a report of all that God had done for Moses and the people, how the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and now he wants to hear the story for himself with his own two ears from Moses' lips. And that's what they talk about when they're finally reunited. After the pleasantries of you know reuniting, they go into Moses' tent, In verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. He gives testimony to how God has saved his people, recounts the the dramatic story of God's miraculous salvation, the the plagues and the, the parting of the Red Sea, the Passover lamb, the manna, the water, the war. And in hearing that story of God's dramatic act of salvation, Jethro experiences a dramatic deliverance of his own. Look at his response to Moses' testimony in verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. But then he gets more specific. And we hear Jethro's response in his own words, including his own testimony of how God has now changed him, having heard this news. Verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Or because of this event in which the Egyptians have dealt arrogantly with God's people. Remember back to the story when when God was taking Egypt through that slow crucible of all of those plagues. Plague after plague after plague. And the reason... He gives for not just hitting him one time, but ten times. That you may know that I am the Lord. That was the lesson he wanted to get across. He wanted to get it across to Pharaoh. This is the reason I've raised you up, so that you might know that I am the Lord. He wanted to get the message across to Israel. And he wanted to get the message across to the surrounding nations as well. He says in chapter 9, verse 16... For this purpose I have raised Pharaoh up, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, Midian is one of those surrounding nations, and Jethro is its priest. 
a priest who has now heard the Lord's name proclaimed through what he has done for Israel and who has now come to know that Israel's God is greater than all gods. And we don't know a whole lot about Midianite religion. Uh, But there's no reason to think that it was any different than most other ancient, uh, the religions of other ancient people groups were worshiping tribal deities, uh, performing ceremonies and offering sacrifices to basically keep their gods happy so that the God will protect them and give them a good harvest and their kids will, you know, be born and, and, and so on. And you go through this process to keep your God happy so that life will go well. And here you have a religious leader among the Midianites now coming to realize that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, is supreme. Supreme. We're not talking about tribes and territories anymore. He is greater than all other would-be gods. God has demonstrated his supremacy that he is unique, unparalleled, unmatched through this miraculous salvation of Israel. And Jethro's heard of that miraculous salvation and now experienced a miraculous salvation of his own, turning away from idols to serve the true and living God. And in case you think he's just being polite to Moses or just adding another deity to his collection, look at his response of worship in verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. There's a recognition here that this man is a worshiper of Yahweh. He's worshiping God and according to God's own law and sharing that together with the leaders of God's people. He is a new creation, a follower of God. And Jethro's story is a reminder that every salvation is a miracle. Every salvation is a miracle. Even those that might not seem particularly spectacular when we retell them. Because consider what's happening in a personal salvation when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. Think about what's happening. What God did for Israel on a national scale, he does for every child of his on a personal scale. He delivers us from bondage, in our case, bondage to sin and death, and gives us new life through faith in him. The Apostle Paul explains uh, in his letter to the Ephesians that apart from Christ, we are, quote, dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people cannot save themselves. Not sure if you've ever observed that. But no dead person ever got up and walked out of a burning building. Dead people can't save themselves. And that's what we are without Jesus. We are spiritually dead. And so, you know, that death might look different for some of us. It might be manifested in a, in a self-righteous compliance that keeps the rules, or it might show itself in a 
in a self-indulgent license that enjoys breaking all of the rules. But either way, apart from Jesus, we are all spiritually dead. And so even the desire to know him or the ability to believe in him, that is a miracle of God. That is a miracle of God, the result of God's spirit working in us to give us new life and reclaim us for his own glory. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every salvation is a miracle of God. It's not something we come up with on our own. Every salvation is a miracle of God designed to display his glory and grace. And so there are no boring testimonies unless you consider raising the dead to be boring. God demonstrates his supremacy through the miraculous. He overthrows kings. He parts the sea. He raises the dead. What other God can do that? That's what Jethro comes to realize. What other God can do that? But as the story in Exodus continues, we also see that God demonstrates his supremacy in the ordinary as well. Not every day in the Christian life involves a Red Sea or a resurrection. But that doesn't mean God's supremacy isn't on display. And so in verse 13, the story turns to an account of very normal life problems for God's saved people. Uh, relational conflict, organizational inefficiency, exasperation, and burnout. Any of that sound familiar to your regular week? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you and I deal with daily. This is not new, nor is it uncommon for a people who've been saved. Just because Israel has experienced salvation from Egypt doesn't mean everything is all of a sudden going to go smoothly or they're now going to have the answers for everything. Already they've faced hunger and thirst and war. So imagine what hundreds of thousands of people in a stressful situation can do in terms of relational conflict. You know, think about that. Israel's not a perfect people, and Moses is not a perfect leader. So verse 13 describes the situation. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. This sounds like a trip to the RMV, right? I mean, you, you, you take small claims court and run it like an RMV, 
and where you show up and the room's already full and there's only one clerk at the front desk. Only multiply that like by a thousand or something. Some of you are thinking, what a terrible clerk. You know, how insensitive and inefficient is it? You know, how utterly exhausting to have to wait all day. You've ruined my day by being the only one at the desk. Others are thinking, that poor clerk, they've got to put up with all of these people all day long who blame them for all of their problems. Who can shoulder that kind of responsibility by themselves? It's exhausting. It's frustrating. And, and, and so this is organizational inefficiency at its worst. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is trying to make sense of the situation himself. He asks in verse 14, what is that? What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Somebody's got to do it, right? They're they're the ones lining up at the door. What else should I do? Uh, It's the recipe for disaster. And Jethro can see that. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. You take relational conflict plus organizational inefficiency, and that equals exasperation and burnout. That's where they're headed. And... And so here's the situation. Here's the next problem in the wilderness. And you would think that the God who has shown his supremacy by parting the sea and raining bread from heaven and bringing water out of the rock is about to come down with a spectacular solution to this problem as well. But instead, he shows his supremacy through very ordinary means. The answer does not come from divine revelation, like what we're going to see in the next few chapters. But it comes from the advice of someone who just confessed faith in Yahweh a few minutes ago. And the solution isn't particularly complicated or innovative. It's rather common sense. It's what we call delegation. You can read about it in any leadership manual. But... God is in it, and it makes a difference. So Jethro says to to Moses in verse 19, Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. So Jethro is giving advice, but he believes God is in this advice. The same God who's greater than all gods is in what I'm about to tell you. He's going to bless it. So what's the solution? Well, first he affirms the unique responsibilities that belong to Moses. Uh, the things that he should focus on and continue to do. Middle of verse 19. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So it's, it's not that Moses should hand everything off uh, or step aside and let someone else lead. He needs to focus on his unique call the responsibility that God has given him, namely to intercede 
for the people with God and to instruct the people in the ways of God. The covenant regulations that are about to be revealed in in chapters 19 and following. But if he's going to do that, if he's going to focus on the main things God has given him to do, that means he has to let go of some other responsibilities. And so Jethro continues in verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. This is the very simple principle of delegation. Uh, It's not complicated, though there is incredible wisdom in it, uh, so much that virtually every human organization or institution depends on it in some way. But the last one to see the need for delegation is often the leader in charge, especially if they are driven or... uh, or take their jobs seriously, or opinionated, or perfectionist, or controlling and arrogant. There's there's all sorts of ways, uh, Good. there's all sorts of reasons this is hard for people. Some of them are good and some of them are, are not. But it's an essential part of healthy leadership in a healthy organization. Uh, whether you're talking about a small business, whether you're talking about a school, or a military squadron, or a corporate giant, or a church or an ancient theocracy like Israel. And and I want to take a minute to think about it. Think about the wisdom of delegation. Because God shows his uniqueness in the ordinary like this as well. So so what is the wisdom here as we see it played out in ancient Israel, and, and how might that apply to the church today? Well, first, delegation requires humility on the part of leadership. Humility on the part of leadership. The recognition by a leader that he or she cannot do it all and should not do it all. Rather, they should focus on their unique calling and delegate the remaining responsibilities to others. So for Moses, again, that meant focusing on interceding and instructing. Uh, For the apostles in Acts 6, remember that story. Acts 6, the, the apostles are getting overburdened because... Uh, the cares of the church body, particularly the widows, were, were becoming so heavy that they couldn't preach the word and take care of the people at the same time. So they delegated responsibility to seven deacons, seven servants, so that they were freed up to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Just because Moses was called by God to lead the people out of Israel, out of Israel doesn't mean he's called to do everything. Or that he's even good at everything. And so a humble leader needs to be keenly aware of their limitations. And instead of covering them up and trying to be everyone's hero, embrace those limitations and ask for help. And I don't, well, I, I have a few reason, think, reasons I think why, but, but uh, this is hard for a lot of leaders. The idea of delegation is hard. It's hard for me because I'm a perfectionist. And even worse, I'm an unorganized perfectionist. 
And so delegating responsibility actually requires more work because I have to get organized enough to be able to hand something off. Um, there's a, a pastoral training cohort that I'm participating in over the next couple of years, and part of that is designed to, to help pastors do a better job with these kinds of things. Uh, because not only is my inability or unwillingness to delegate really a sign of arrogance more than lack of organization. It's a fast track to burnout, and it's a disservice to all of you. When opportunities for leadership or service are withheld because the lead pastor is either too arrogant or too unorganized, that's a disservice to the body. The lead pastor becomes a bottleneck, or, or any organization, the leader becomes a bottleneck. And so delegation requires genuine humility on the part of a leader. Second, it requires spiritual maturity among emerging leaders. So notice that Jethro's advice is not to place responsibility on just anyone. You know, the way it often happens today. There's a need and your heart is beating and you're still upright, you can do it. That's kind of, we just got to fill the need, right? In verse 21, Jethro tells Moses to choose able men. And then he specifies what that means. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. This is very similar to what we talked about uh, upstairs during the 930 Sunday school class on the character of leadership in, in a healthy church. There are qualifications for leadership among God's people, as there should be in any organization. And integrity is one of the chief ones that, that Jethro points out here. Integrity. Someone that you can trust to do what is right and who will refuse to be bought or persuaded to do what is wrong. And that applies across the board in any organization. Integrity is a key qualification for leadership. But where does real, unbreakable integrity come from? According to Jethro, it comes from the fear of God. The fear of God. Men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Those who recognize that they are not God, that God is God and they are not, that God is king and his ways are greater than ours, that God is holy and he judges sin, and that God is worthy. And there's no greater joy than to honor and serve him and his kingdom. Delegation requires spiritual maturity among emerging leaders. Third, it requires a culture of trust and empowerment. It's not enough for a leader to delegate responsibility without also trusting their fellow leaders and sharing the authority necessary for them to get the job done. There's nothing more frustrating in an organization than to be given the responsibility to do something but not the authority to carry it out. That's like grating your forehead against a brick wall all day long. And so... Jethro tells Moses to impart authority with that responsibility. Verse 22 again. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. 
But any small matter, they shall decide for themselves. They have authority to do it. And that culture of trust and empowerment, that's what enables young leaders to grow and mature, to discover their own gifts and abilities and put them into service for the Lord. Without it, again, the leader becomes the bottleneck. And the whole community suffers. Relational conflict, organizational inefficiency, exasperation, burnout. And and nurturing that kind of culture comes back to the first two requirements. If the leader is humble enough to recognize that they don't have all the answers and they can't do everything, and if the young leaders are mature enough to be entrusted with their responsibility, then they need to be trusted. The leader needs to trust them, not micromanage, and they need to be convinced that they have their leader's trust. So there's so much wisdom, practical wisdom, ordinary, common sense wisdom in what Jethro's imparting to Moses and God's people. But finally, and most importantly, there's wisdom here in delegation because God is at work through this very ordinary advice. Verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. What brings relief to Moses and peace to the people is not a voice from heaven this time, uh, but the counsel of a non-Israelite brand new follower of God. And his advice works. Moses puts it into practice in verses 24 to 27. The God who is greater than all gods demonstrates his supremacy in the miraculous, yes, but also in the ordinary and every day. What other God can do this? You know, God isn't so insecure that he's afraid to lead his people through ordinary means as well as extraordinary. Again, we we see the extraordinary, and and that's so often where we focus You know, God changed Israel's life through the extraordinary and and changed Jethro's life. And we're going to see a lot more of that as we go on. Next week, the covenant at Sinai, where God will reveal his law and reveal himself to his people in an electrifying way. It is miraculous and spectacular. And we want to see the extraordinary today. We want to see God do the spectacular We want to see ungodly people saved and broken marriages restored and the sick healed and and bitter relationships reconciled. And we pray that God would do all of those things. But we don't always have to wait around for the mountaintop experience to live wisely in God's world or to see his supremacy and majesty at work. The simple unassuming habits of daily Bible reading and prayer. I mean, before Instagram, there was nothing spectacular about sitting down and reading your Bible. Now we make a show of it sometimes. But it's just, it's normal. It's ordinary. But this simple habit, like a slow, gentle rain, nourishing our hearts over time, growing within us an intimate love for God, God shows his supremacy in the ordinary. 
the common courtesy of showing kindness to a stranger. What a breath of fresh air in a world that is just heavy with suspicion and, and division. The unglamorous routine of spending time with your kids, reading books, playing games, talking about Jesus, praying with them for others in need, and, and, and watching through this unglamorous everyday activity, watching their minds and their hearts widen toward others and toward God. The painfully ordinary act of taking your father out for dinner to share the gospel with him. Or inviting your neighbors over for supper and watching God lay the foundation for a relationship that will one day be able to bear the weight of truth. The practical wisdom of delegation. God makes his supremacy known through both the miraculous and the ordinary. And so pray for the miraculous. Pray for God to reveal himself in earth-shattering ways. For people to be healed. For, for uh, people to be transformed. We want to see revival across the Metro West in New England. Men and women repenting of sin. Turning from false gods. Embracing Jesus and finding that he is the treasure of their life and that there's nothing that can compare. Pray for the miraculous. But don't be afraid of the ordinary. And don't think that God can't use the ordinary to work a miracle. After all, our Savior came as a very ordinary, unassuming, unspectacular man who accomplished the most extraordinary miracle in all of human history. Isaiah describes him like this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You can't get more ordinary than that. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him this one whom we would pass over and never notice or see. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That we might be forgiven. That is a miracle. That is what our Savior does. Let's pray.
gracious Father, we praise you that there is no other God like you. And Lord, we confess that it's only by your grace that we're able to utter those words. But it's true. It's gloriously true. And we praise you that you have made yourself known to us through Christ. One whom, left to ourselves, we would have overlooked and ignored. We would have considered that God couldn't be in something so plain and unspectacular. And yet it pleased you to reveal yourself through your Son. And through Him to do everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. Offering His righteous life in our place. And taking our sin and its penalty in our place. That we might be new creations in Him. God, praise You that You are above all gods. And we pray that You would meet us wherever we are to show us your supremacy, your majesty. We pray for the miraculous God. We do pray that lives would be changed through the preaching of your word. We pray that that your spirit would work incredible power to heal what is broken and restore uh, what is severed, Lord. We pray for broken relationships in our midst, for broken bodies. God, would you... Put back together what is broken. And we pray, God, that we wouldn't be afraid to see you do it through ordinary means. Would you encourage our hearts and remind us that you are at work and that there is no other God like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.